All right. Hello and welcome to the Borderlines podcast, a podcast for the discussion of uh, Canadian citizenship, immigration and border related issues. I'm Steve Murens here remotely with Diana Okmachoff. And we have to be remote because we are self-isolating. You may uh, hear young children and puppy dogs uh, running around in the background today. This podcast is being recorded while my toddler is asleep. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are going to talk today about the, I don't even know what to call it, the impact of the coronavirus on Canadian immigration programs. Uh, we've kind of divided it into four topics, which are the travel bans, operations, which is like IRCC processing during uh, this shutdown, for lack of a better word, Um, and then litigation, what the Immigration Refugee Board of Canada is doing and what the Federal Court of Canada is doing, and then we're going to highlight detention issues, including a case out of the Ontario Superior Court. So why don't we start it off? And I should note, we are recording this on... Gosh, what day is it? I'm already starting to lose track of days. The 23rd. The 23rd on Monday at 2.07. And what we say now, who knows what it will be an hour from now or two hours from now. Um, There have been multiple announcements of what policies are, only to be replaced by policies later announced. Orders in Council, which are the actual law that's released, to I think the latest regarding the travel bans are IRCC asking people to please ignore what they've posted on there, what people have announced until the Orders in Council are actually in place. So why don't we start with the current, and then I guess what they're proposing as well, travel restrictions on who can enter Canada. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, So really, uh, what we've seen with the travel restrictions are these ever-escalating travel restrictions. They started off with a piece of legislation that came in under the Aeronautics Act and then two um, subsequent orders in council that were issued under the Quarantines Act. Um, but essentially, there's one now that is that is really relating to travel uh, um, travel from across the from from the United States and travel that's international travel into Canada. Um, and what those essentially say is that there's a general prohibition on all travel into Canada except from the United States of non-Canadians, non-permanent residents, and non-protected persons. Um, And that is subject to certain exemptions. um, And the exemptions are for immediate family members. Uh, The definition of immediate family members goes beyond what we're accustomed to seeing in the immigration context. It's not just strictly the spouse and common law partner, children, grandchildren, parents, but it also extends to the foreign nationals, parents, step-parents, the foreign nationals, um, spouses, step-parents, parents, parents, their um, guardians, tutors, so it's a bit broader than that. 
Um, but there are also exemptions for people that have written authorization from a consular authority where they want to reunite with family in Canada, even if those family members aren't Canadian. Uh, for diplomats who are not just vacationing in Canada, um, for um, those who are being asked to come to Canada for national interests by the Minister of Foreign Affairs or the Minister of Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada, or by the Minister of Public Safety and Emergency Preparedness. And for those who are simply transiting through Canada, uh, for crew members and for Canadians who are traveling on a foreign passport. Um, I think that basically covers the, the overall international travel ban for countries not including travel from the United States. Um, I don't think I've left anybody out there. Oh, um, also, um, it doesn't um, it doesn't relate to those who are um, those defined as Indians under the Indian Act. So um, maybe you want to talk, Steve, about the, the bans from the United States. So the ban from the United States specifically, uh, and I'll refer for now to just the Order in Council, uh, Order in Council 2020-0161, which is minimizing the risk of exposure to COVID-19 in Canada order, prohibition from entry into Canada from the United States. And this pertains uh, generally to the land border, um, which I think was briefly closed on September 12, 2001, if I remember, but otherwise the border being closed for this length of time is pretty unprecedented. And it states uh, that a foreign national is prohibited uh, from entering Canada from the United States in general. And there are two exceptions. The first is those who are entering for an optional or discretionary purpose, sorry, those who are not entering for an optional or discretionary purpose, including tourism, recreation, and entertainment. And there are a lot of questions involving what that means. Um, the Minister of uh, Citizenship and Immigration has stated that it will be eventually including workers and students, although the exact uh, people who want to work in Canada, people who want to study in Canada, although the exact parameters of whether that includes, for example, new study permit applicants or new work permit applicants has not been explained. Um, also exempted are people who have only been in the United States or Canada during the period of 14 days before the day on which they seek to enter Canada. So um, it's, sorry, and it's and, so it's people who have only been in the United States or Canada during the 14 days before the day on which they seek to enter and who are not coming in for an optional or discretionary purpose such as tourism, recreation, and entertainment. I can tell you that I've got one client who uh, is not a U.S. citizen who's been working exclusively in the United States for the past two years. And it is not clear to us yet whether he would be able to come and apply for a work permit, although it seems like the intention is people who do have work permits will be able to uh, come in. The closure at the land border uh, includes asylum claimants. 
So section four of this order states that a foreign national is prohibited from entering Canada from the United States for the purpose of making a claim for refugee protection. So, uh, and excluded from this are U.S. citizens, people who are stateless in the United States, which I thought was an interesting exemption, mm -hmm. uh, and finally, basically unaccompanied minors. So, that, the closure of the border to irregular migrants was also something that changed throughout the week. At the middle of last week, it was that all irregular migrants would be detained um, or monitored to ensure that they were self-isolating. Now it's just been announced as a complete closure of the system to irregular migrants. Um, and we will see, you know, one of the questions that some people have been asking is Canada has been under pressure to, you know, modernize, to use the word they choose, the government chooses to use, the safe third party agreement and how permanent will this prohibition be? Uh, you know, it's obviously we need to get through the COVID-19 crisis before we know that. Um, and that is, pre oh, and the other uh, restriction regarding the land border is it is closed to immigration services. So flag polling, which is the practice of driving to the Canada-US border entering the United States very briefly and then turning around to apply for a work permit is not currently allowed and landing appointments are currently not being done at the Canada-US border. So um, Steve very nicely gave the citation for the order and council that he spoke to. So I wanna offer the same kind of citation for the one that I referenced. Um, about the travel from international destinations, and that's the Order and Council 20200162. And we can provide links to both of these with the uh, when you where you download the the podcast today, so that you can find them both. But as he mentioned too, that both of these are being left. They they seem somewhat clear when you read them, but um, as Steve mentioned. Uh, they leave still a lot of uncertainty in terms of the interpretation, such as, for example, um, even the question about whether or not a Canadian or permanent resident can come to Canada. Well, what does that mean for somebody who is outside of Canada, who has been approved for permanent resident, but does not yet um, has the approved confirmation of permanent resident, but um, needs to travel to Canada to actually meet with an officer to sign that document before they become a permanent resident. Now, the website seems to indicate that they would be permitted to travel, but I've had a client who was denied boarding um, with that confirmation of permanent residence. And part of the issue here is that um, there is clearly some liability on airlines who are boarding people with that documentation and they're on the hook and maybe even subject to fines if they're boarding people who aren't going to be let in on the Canada side. And so they seem to be erring on the side of caution and not boarding people that they are afraid will not be let in based on the documentation that they've seen. So some of these discretionary decisions are being made by airline personnel rather than by uh, immigration border officials. And under these circumstances, people often aren't willing to take risks. No, so, and part of it is on Twitter two hours ago, 
IRCC tweeted, the travel exemptions announced on March 20 are not yet in effect for temporary foreign workers, international students, or approved permanent residents that have not yet landed in Canada. Don't travel before an announcement is made. And so the issue there is that there were statements made, but those orders in council that Deanna and I have been reading, which is what the law actually is, uh, have not yet been updated. So until they are, we won't actually know the fine details. Yes. And the website is not always totally in sync with what the instructions are going to the airlines as well, because things are happening so quickly and in real time. And there are... um, because people are so concerned about when these instructions are going to come down and when they're going to become subject to prohibitions in terms of even exit travel. They're also dealing with expiration dates on their travel documents and whether or not they're going to be able to catch such a flight before their confirmation of permanent residence document expires, for example. So I'll speak about that a little bit more when we get to the operational section, but um, these are some of the preoccupations of people um, abroad. And the United States, uh, like I looked at, they actually have their legislation or policies. I don't actually know the U.S. terminology uh, up. And the words they use are that essential travel for the purpose of crossing the United States-Canada border includes individuals traveling to attend educational institutions and individuals traveling to work in the United States. So again, it's still not, uh, that, that doesn't fully say whether it includes new applicants. Um, it also doesn't say whether it includes the spouses or family members of students and foreign workers. And I know there's been, and I think still is, uncertainty um, on the Canadian side as well. Yeah, it also leaves some question as to what does that mean, attending an educational institution when so many of those institutions are currently on hiatus right now because um, just by necessity. Yeah, and the Canadian government has talked about for the purpose of people working in Canada, uh, people who already have work permits, but it's not clear whether that includes the huge swath of people who are allowed to work in Canada without a work permit under Regulation 186 of the Immigration right. Protection Regs, which includes a 30-day work permit exemption for highly trained individuals. Of course, those people would be cut down to 14 days because they have to self-isolate. Uh, so I'm not yeah. sure. I'm actually not sure how any of the need to urgently enter Canada to work will no. work in practice when you're supposed to be self-isolating for two weeks. True Uh, enough. Yeah, I think also, I mean, just this whole notion of what constitutes an essential service. Like, I think talking about the the healthcare occupation, talking about the the academic sphere, it's sort of um, an opportune moment to mention that those types of institutions are very much struggling even internally with what constitutes essential services. So now that we've got concepts like essential services, which are very complicated concepts being grappled with by frontline officers at the port of entry, what constitutes an essential service, you know, um, something that is not just travel for the purpose of leisure or, um, you know, it's not quite the same 
nomenclature, but again, these are very nuanced concepts and people are trying to um, adjudicate these at the port of entry in an emergency type situation. And I think it's a pretty broad discretion. Yeah. Um, I think that's, I mean, I'm sure as we click through, uh, as we talk about other matters, we'll think of things regarding the travel bans. Mm -hmm. that you want to move forward into program delivery a little bit? Yeah, I just wanted to double check the order in council. Oh, yeah. The, so the travel bans will be in effect. Again, they can always just change this. But as of right now, it is until June 30, 2020. I think they both have different um, effective until dates, actually, the two different ones. I think this, um, the one that I mentioned about the family members, the international one goes until 30th of June. Wasn't yours a different um, end date? Oh, uh, let me, I don't even know if I still got it open, but I can. Um, I think I do. Um, I've got it here. It's 30 June for air. Oh, April. It's. This, this whole 20, thing's got us, everybody thinking on their feet. The 21st of... Um, 21st, 21st of April for yeah. the land border. But yeah, of course, any of these can be changed at any time. Yeah, right. Uh, so that one's shorter. Okay, so let's move over to then the sort of general program delivery type things. And I think really um, we started with the travel restrictions because, of course, that sort of that sets the tone a little bit. Um, um, you know, public safety, of course, being the number one priority in this sort of reducing the influx and flattening the curve is clearly the priority. Um, I don't know how many of you listened to the Prime Minister's speech this morning, but really uh, the message there was stay at home. Uh, I don't want to have to make any of these rules more mandatory than they are already, but if they need to be, then they can become more mandatory. So I think uh, we're the, what we're seeing... This weird narrative of this is all volunteer mm. so please volunteer before we introduce the emergencies act and suspend all your civil liberties for sure volunteer not, not that i disagree with social isolating i just think the messaging and the weird way that they keep saying this is volunteer voluntary but if you don't do it uh, yeah, I don't think it's going to, I mean, even this feels not very voluntary. I mean, these are, um, these are pretty um, strict measures. And if we were looking back at this or looking forward to this uh, eight weeks ago, we all would have thought that this was something so unthinkable. Um, but again, I think that I would not be at all surprised to see the measures becoming much more dramatic and drastic in terms of the restrictions quite quickly. Uh, so, I mean, I think that's definitely the direction that we're going because there is a real uh, panic about making sure that we do continue to diminish the curve. So it's no surprise then that there's a dramatic slowing in terms of um, different processes. Um, some of it is just that there's been closure of many VACs, that many of the IRCC offices are going down to essential staff. Um, it's really getting biometrics is right now not possible. And in terms of many of the, I mean, getting medical exams just for doing most 
processes like a permanent residence application, um, a work permit application, those sorts of things are um, either difficult or impossible to do at this point. Um, and so Steve and I, before we started, we're also just talking about some of the, the ideologies behind some of the applications beyond just the, the mechanics and the semantics of it. Like the, the linchpin of most temporary work permit applications is the labor market impact assessment, meaning an application by a Canadian employer to say that there is no Canadian available to do the job. So we've been talking back and forth about our LMIA still being processed. And Steve shared that he's had an application for an LMIA that's been scheduled as usual. Um, LMIA interviews that have happened with clients in our office are being suspended. We're not sure if that's indefinitely, if they're going to be rescheduled. But the task on Service Canada officers right now is to determine whether the hiring of a foreign national will have a positive, negative, or neutral impact on the Canadian labour market. And at a moment where we're seeing the influx of 500,000 EI applications by Canadians newly laid off, it doesn't surprise me that Service Canada is a little reluctant to be issuing positive labour market impact assessment applications. I don't know if that's a matter of them not knowing how to make that kind of assessment about the Canadian labour market when nobody really knows where the Canadian labour market is right now, or if it's just simply a function of them sending all of their staff over to process EI applications by Canadians <laughs> who work. So really, we're, we're kind of in no man's land here right now. And so, um, you know, uh, it's I hard frankly... Because on the other uh, one hand, there's a surge in EI applications. But on the other hand, the surge isn't caused necessarily by a surplus of labor or a slowdown, a structural slowdown in the economy as much as it is government-mandated shutdowns. And as soon as those shutdowns are lifted, um, there could be a huge surge the other way. So I don't know what the timeline that an ESDC officer is looking at or if they look at... Um, I don't even know how they assess them in the nature of like, say, in Ontario and probably the other provinces soon, which are doing shelter in place orders uh, as far as the ability to fulfill the job. But I would hope that there's a bit of a long term focus on LMIA applications. And I'm not just saying that because I have one in processing. Uh, but yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I know for sure I wouldn't want to be, um, you know, a restaurant trying to get an LMIA for a, you know, a food service supervisor right now. Um, I definitely wouldn't want to be there. But at the same time, if I'm a manufacturing institution and I'm trying to produce goods and I'm ho hoping to retool to try and, uh, you know, start producing, uh, you know, uh, supplies that are going to be used by by medical facilities here in Canada, then my need for those workers might be even more critical than it was before. So uh, oh, yeah. it's it's not an easy job on this, uh, on this system, for sure. And I think on that, I want to pull up the exact... Um, I've lost track of where everything is, but the L on the LMIA side, they are I doing. I think I have 30 tabs open right now, Steve. I don't yeah. know about you. There's a, yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's recruitment exemption that's been announced for 
certain businesses. I think seafood processing is one of them, possibly farms. And yeah. they're also increasing or no, they're yeah, they're increasing the duration of low wage LMIA work permits from yeah. one year to two years. Right. I'm curious to know the rationale behind that, because that I mean, I, it's just a, a curious like I've, I actually haven't been able to figure out what the rationale would be beyond stability for business at a time of great business uncertainty, but why in normal times these low-wage work permits would be one year, and as a result of the COVID-19 crisis, they're going to extend new work permits, unless their press statement is wrong and they're just going to extend everyone's existing work permit to two years. Um, I can't even try to imagine. I just, I mean, I think about um, really a massive and urgent effort to try and address some of these supply chain solutions in such a way that we're not so dependent on foreign sources of of these kinds of supplies and just trying to help um, buoy up these industries so that they can start really hunkering down and, uh, you know, if we're going to try and not depend so much on foreign sources for for these food supplies but you know what um, wasn't concurrently announced with that was a like they waived recruitment and they increased the duration they didn't inc- announce a reduction in processing times at either the IRC level or the uh, ESDC level so no. But they were talking about Farm Credit Canada subsidies and... um, Yeah, but just in terms of the LMIA and getting workers in. So I think, obviously, there are more to drop on this. Um, But what I... I I feel like, you know, there's this weird lag with this virus and that measures we enact today, you don't really know what the results are for two weeks because of this incubation period. And... A part of me wonders if the curve is starting to flat, if this is, if these announcements are being made because they think the measures they have now will bear fruit two weeks from now and they can start mm-hmm. relaxing or possibly bringing people in. I have no idea. Yeah. And people who I, are listening uh, are probably saying he has no idea. <laughs> yeah. <So. laughs> yeah. I don't know. I do. I do feel a little bit, though. And um, I feel like um, our former co-host, Peter, if he's listening, will be laughing because it will be the first time he'll see me making something that um, is in like um, a feeling of confidence about some of the measures that have been put forward by by our government is that I do feel like some of the proposals that have been made do seem to be slightly ahead of the curve as opposed to behind the curve and so that has to me instilled more confidence than I expected to have in the face of this type of a crisis where it doesn't seem to be a reactive way of dealing with things but rather a kind of proactive you know how are we going to enable people to retool um, that's has me, in terms of answering that question that you just posed, Steve, thinking that I have more faith than I expected to, that they're thinking about what's going to work for next week rather than than last week. Yeah, and the 
speed with which, which is unusually Gamma... optimistic for me, as you might uh, yeah. appreciate. <laughs> Would have been nice if they had started making masks back in January and February, but uh, yeah. there we are now. Yeah. Uh, just going yeah. through the other announcement. Okay, so we wanted to move on towards. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, just on processing is the uh, you'd mentioned biometrics are suspended. Yes, that's right. Uh, how they are treating rejections due to incomplete applications. And there's a program right. update which basically says it's a bit weird in that the onus is on the applicant to identify why they couldn't obtain a necessary document mm. uh, and to then provide that document within 90 days or it will be returned. Um, even though the explanation seems just so patent, but um, yeah, like how many how many letters of due to COVID nineteen does the department want? Yeah, they seem to even provide the standardized language people are supposed to be using. So, um, but in any event, at least they are acknowledging that an R the what we call the R ten bounce um, will not continue will not will not ensue strictly because you've not been able to comply with let's say a request for biometrics a request for a medical exam and that what they're going to do is just bf the file for review in a further 90 days and follow up with the applicant yeah. um you know with the request for further documents and the other thing that i can see coming is a relaxation in r10 bounces so mm -hmm. in the sim committee in parliament uh, some members of parliament have been asking, you know, why are, uh, why does IRCC bounce applications so readily? Christine Normandin and Jenny Kwan have been especially forceful on this issue. And I think on March 12, it's interesting because there seems to be a disconnect with what senior officials are telling parliament and what happens on the ground sometimes. But the senior officials who announced on March 12 that there may be a directive going out to officers is, and I'll just quote her, um, that we are using this approach at IRCC. What is the piece that is missing? If it is simply our document or something that is very trivial, we actually do try to call if possible and uh, see if we can simply get a document. Um, if there's a missing signature, it might need to be returned. But if it's information or a document that we can readily get, we will not be returning applications. Obviously, that's not the current process. No. But I wonder if due to COVID-19, uh, the directive will come out just so there's not a flood of bounces after. And for the litigator, I mean, there is something pretty clear on their website right now that an R10 bounce should not ensue. Yeah. Well, screenshot it for your judicial it, review yeah, application. Clearly identifies what it what yes. the missing document is. True enough. True enough. Uh, let's say that you know someone forgets. I don't know what causes an R10 bounce. Someone forgets to put their medical exam. Their or medical. Or their police exam. clearance has expired or whatever. Or they forget to put you know San Francisco, California, United States, and they forget to write United States on the form. Uh, um, that type of stuff. Will they like? It, there's the person has to actually actively spot that they're sending in something that is incomplete. I can tell you what our office is dealing with right now. Our um, 
issues getting original signatures mm, and right. with digital. Uh, one that I was going to add here too, Steve, is the educational credentials assessment, because there are certain organizations you need to use to get educational credentials assessment. And what that means is like, you've got a degree from Australia um, and in order to apply and get any points in our express entry system for that degree, you need to get a report from a Canadian organization saying that Australian bachelor's degree is the equivalent to a Canadian bachelor's degree. Um, you can't just send the diploma and the transcript. You need to get this report from this agency. And it takes you about six or eight weeks in good times to get this report. And without the report, you can't file your permanent residence application. So, and um, schools have to provide transcripts and schools are closed all over. That's right. And so, um, I mean, I guess this isn't really about R10 bounces because the issue is that if you don't, you can't get the educational credentials assessment, you can't even create your profile. Um, so this will cause um, issues for people. And there is a real trickle down effect here because, um, you know, not being able to apply for permanent residence seems like a pretty um, discreet issue and maybe one that's not so pressing. But for a lot of people, they need to apply for permanent residence to be able to extend their work permit. So if they can't get that educational credentials assessment from no fault of their own, they can't create their profile, they then can't file their permanent residence application, and then they can't extend their stay. So these are people who've done everything exactly to the book, they've qualified, they've got the right number of points, but because of a slowdown in this administration that they have no control over, they just can't get it all filed and done. Um, maybe having spent many years doing everything that they needed to do, getting their Canadian education or whatever. I mean, education maybe wouldn't be the thing unless it was a second um, educational credential. Um, but that might be the thing that scuppers it so that they can't extend their stay and then they end up potentially here without status in Canada. So and it has a real... It's funny that you uh, talk about ECAs because... Yeah. Education credential assessments are mandatory for federal skilled workers mm. and not in the Canadian experience class. And there was an express entry draw today that was limited to the Canadian experience class. And I wonder if part of it is just a huge dearth of new uh, federal skilled worker applicants. And on that, the comprehensive... It was, it was it confined to the CEC, wasn't it? Not to the yeah. FSO. It yeah, was, it was only a Canadian experience class. Only Canadian yeah. experience class. And points have gone from... 473-ish, 471-ish to 467. Mm -hmm. So immigration plans on maintaining immigration levels this year, uh, given the fact that no one can do language tests, given the fact that uh, it's not currently possible to do ECAs, there may be a decline in uh, federal skilled worker points uh, not federal and school, getting but. medical exams can be real tough, if not impossible. No, but also just the threshold to mm -hmm. get a patient to apply might go down. Yes, for sure. Um, and then for those who actually get through, let's imagine that you've got your approval. Um, so you've got the little letter from immigration saying, yes, your application has been approved. Now you need to meet with an immigration official in order to become a permanent resident. Well, landing interviews that were being conducted at the offices inside Canada have all been cancelled. 
Um, as Steve said earlier, you can't now go down to a land border crossing to do that flag polling exercise to get the documents signed. Uh, there was talk earlier on about doing those landing interviews by telephone or by webcam or something like that. I don't know if you've heard anything more about that, Steve. I haven't heard any. Oh, on initial, uh, I don't know if it was a tweet or a program delivery update that uh, landing interviews could be by video, but I haven't seen a uh, any follow up to that. I don't know how that would work in practice because. Well, I guess they could just sign the uh, confirmation of permanent residence and mail it to someone. Yes, that's right. But yeah, I've heard no further word about it. So again, it's just that issue for people that, you know, need that document in order to be able to get their um, health care coverage extended. And again, there are all these carry on impacts for people, um, especially those whose status in Canada is contingent upon them landing at a particular period of time based on when their work permit or study permit expires. So, um, but we, we don't have the detail on that as far as I'm concerned, as far as I've, I've heard. Yeah, but also the way government is responding, I'm sure by the week's end, there'll be answers to a lot of these questions. Yeah, absolutely. And they have been pretty clear that um, that that things that people cannot comply with because of their inability to travel, for example, like people that are outside of the country with the COPR, uh, that they can't travel on because they can't catch a flight, um, that those will, um, in all likelihood, again, there's not a lot of detailed or specificity on the website, but that those will likely be extended. But they do make clear that if you are in such a situation that you should be reaching out to the department, to, to the department by web form and just saying, look, I've got this COPR, I'm trying to use it, but I can't and that um, extensions will not be unreasonably denied. Uh, but I just think that um, it's the best practice to to try and make contact and just communicate what the intentions are and what the efforts are that are being made. Yeah, uh, just to make sure you're preserving that. Um, I'm reading just other. Whether any other processing. LMI, as we talked about being in process, uh, the provincial nomination program is at least British Columbia's is still processing applications. Yeah. They yeah, we don't know how long that will continue for, but uh, they are still processing um, as of quite recently. I've got some decisions just the last couple of days and their processing times for at least for applications that are already submitted don't seem to be really any different. Um, that's not, I haven't seen any changes so far. Yeah. Um, I do have to wonder, I'm kind of surprised that the government just hasn't frozen people's status instead of forcing, like they're requesting that people apply online to extend. They're explaining how restoration of status works. It seems like uh, it could be a lot more straightforward to just... Um, extend people's status automatically somehow like any statuses i feel like just six months to a year extension of status yes i think that that would be a wonderfully well received order in council um but again i, I can i can i can see that they've got a lot going on too and i guess don't want to deter 
those who are here in Canada who might then miss opportunities to go and be reunited with their families before other travel restrictions come down. Yeah. Like I, I know that these are probably not easy policy decisions to make either. And one of the other processing changes to announce, I guess, is that uh, over the weekend there was an order in council uh, amending the regulations to take effect April 30 that will increase processing fees. So the average express and well the average express entry applications for adults will be going from 1,040 to 1,325, and for business immigrants it'll be going from 1,540 to 2,075 per applicant. Children. And Steve, it's the actual application fee and not the landing fee that's changing. Landing fee is going from 490 to 500. I see. And the other thing they're the doing, kind of surprising that this wasn't already the case, is uh, starting in 2022, it is going to be tied to inflation. Huh. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay, and then the last one on the sort of operations side is just citizenship. Um, and the thing about citizenship is, again, just because of the social distancing, they have essentially canceled all tests, all uh, swearing in ceremonies, and those will all just be rescheduled when they can be. Um, but what they do seem to be indicating, and I imagine that this will be the same for permanent residence card renewals, but again, it's, it's hard to know how this is all going to change once the dust settles, is that time spent so the way that citizenship works and the way that re remaining maintaining permanent resident status works is it all depends on how much time you've spent in Canada and what the the original protocols that are set out on the on the internet right now on their on the immigration website say is that days spent abroad will be treated as days spent away regardless of why one was away if they were away because they couldn't travel because of travel restrictions that they will still be considered days spent away and that you must nevertheless meet the physical present test when you apply for permanent residence so if you've been away for a prolonged period of time and now you don't have enough days anymore to qualify for canadian citizenship well then you need to come back and spend enough days in order to qualify so whether or not this is going to mean that applications that are in process that maybe met the requirements, um, uh, well, I think for citizenship applications, it would be locked in as of the date of application, but it's much more touchy with things like permanent residence card extensions or permanent residence travel documents applications um, and that sort of thing. But anyways, this will be something else to see how that all shakes out once, once things go back to normal in terms of whether or not the time that people had to spend away because of, of travel bans will end up impacting on their ability to become citizens or to maintain their permanent resident status. Yeah, once things get back to normal. Um, litigation, I feel mm -hmm. like we summarize this in like one sentence. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Even one word, suspended. Yeah, pretty much, unless except for detention reviews, because, of course, people who are being detained still have uh, their rights to come up and have detention reviews to determine whether or not they are entitled to be released from detention. But pretty much for all other hearings, uh, those deadlines and those those regular hearings are being suspended. It is pretty clear, though, that not knowing how long these restrictions are going to be in place, efforts are being made to 
consider modernization initiatives, such as whether or not hearings could take place by teleconference and that sort of thing. So these are not indefinite um, postponements or deferrals, but right now nothing is happening and deadlines are being extended, uh, which is challenging for some because it means those who are in a real state of limbo, uh, who have a refusal decision that they're trying to overturn, for example, or those who are making a claim for refugee protection and uh, don't have that protection now or have family members abroad who are still in danger, um, those types of people are still in this prolonged period of limbo and not able to get the resolution that they they will want because those hearings can't be safely held until other possible ways for them to be done safely can be put into place. But again, I, I have no doubt that um, the tribunals and the courts are, are working to try and come up with other ways to, to enable this to continue moving forward. Yeah. Um, and on the note of detention, there is one case that has been making the rounds, RVJS 2020, uh, Ontario Superior Court 1710, which is a decision involving the coronavirus. Uh, Not an immigration decision, but uh, nevertheless interesting for our discussion. Yeah, a uh, bail hearing, whether someone should be released from detention. Um, and the uh, there was an argument that there had been a material change. And I'll just read from the judgment by Justice Copeland, which says, uh, this brings me to the second material change, the current situation with the coronavirus. Uh, and I'm just going to skip. Uh, a little bit ahead, which is, uh, in my view, the greatly elevated risk posed to detained inmates from the coronavirus, as compared to him being at home on house arrest, is a factor that must be considered in assessing this tertiary ground. I want to be clear that I am not suggesting any failure of the correctional authorities to take appropriate steps to attempt to keep inmates healthy and to attempt to limit the spread of the virus. But based on current events around the world and in this province, that the risk to health from this virus in a confined space with many people like a jail are significantly greater than if the defendant is able to self-isolate at home. Um, and the judge basically goes on to say that it's easier to practice social distancing when you don't have to share a cell with other inmates, which sounds true. So that... Um, so, yeah, as Deanna said, it's not an immigration decision, but uh, it will, the same logic would certainly apply in immigration proceedings, I would think. Indeed, I hope so. Um, that's about it now, I think. Are there any other? I'm sure we've missed a ton. I'm sure if I'm we look sure. at it, a lot has changed. Um, yes. That's because uh, we haven't read our, our Twitter feeds or our Instagram or the news for the 45 minutes or whatever it's been since we've been recording this. So yep. back at it. But uh, perhaps we need to do another session to uh, to address some of the changes that all of the many uh, small and boutique immigration firms around the country have been facing and trying to address um 
you know, how we've, we've all been coping and trying to manage with uh, this ever shifting reality. Um, but I think, uh, I think that's all that I wanted to cover in the space of this podcast. But, uh, but of course, we'll always continue examining and speaking to one another and figuring out whether or not there's a way we can provide some further meaningful updates. Yep. And uh, absolutely, especially since we're both since we're both self-isolating, we don't have mm-hmm. commutes anymore. We can take some of that time that we would have been uh, commuting to podcasting. That's right. Okay, In the awesome. meantime, wish you all uh, lots of safety and um, good health and uh, that you hope that you're all finding good ways to help one another out and be supportive and keep your, keep your marbles together. <laughs> I know these are very, very tough times for everyone and um, sometimes good to remember that as we talk about all this, um, just knowing that everybody's really struggling and uh, everybody's trying their best to work together and help one another find solutions. Absolutely. Yeah. Take care. Take care. Okay. Bye. Bye.